If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Trent, and I have the unbelievable privilege of being the lead pastor here at McDonough Christian Church. If, it's your, if you're new here today, it's your very first time, uh, can we just let the new folks around us uh, know how glad we are to have them in the house today? Exactly. Yeah. So if you are new, I'd invite you to do a couple things. One, you can fill out a little red card in front of you. And once you fill out, you can take it right back out of there. Uh, there's a connect table. There's some big smiling faces who love to have a chance to get to meet you, get to know you, answer any questions you may have about who uh, we are as a church and how uh, you can find a place to truly belong just as you are here. And so today, as you maybe putting two and two together because you guys are good at context clues. Uh, we are kicking off a series on money, okay? Now everybody relax. What did we just do? We just took the offering, okay? So like offering has already happened, all right? So relax, like don't clutch your purse. Don't say, oh, we picked the wrong Sunday to check this place out. Um, for those of you who are guests, um, we're probably about once a year, we'll lean into this stuff. And again, I want to talk to you today starting out as to why we do this. Why we believe it is important, it's critical for God's people to lean into what he says about finances, what he says about giving. The reality is, the Bible, God's word, it actually talks about money more than it does prayer and faith combined. And so you say, well, Trent, we're just not talking about money. Come on, would you just stick to the Bible. Well, well, if I did that, I would talk about money every third sermon, and you guys wouldn't like that. Um, and so I want to lean into the words of Jesus himself, because if you really want to boil it down to like, okay, why are we talking about this? Why is it important? Why will we spend four weeks diving into how to do this? The words of Jesus is the best answer I can get. And if you got a Bible, you can turn to the gospel of Matthew. Matthew is a close friend of Jesus who wrote down things about his life. And he wrote down the sermon that Jesus preached, which if my sermon fails you today and you're like, man, I want to hear a good one, go read Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6 and you'll read the greatest sermon ever preached. It's Jesus' sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. But in Matthew 6, this is what Jesus says. Verse 19. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Skip down to verse 24. He says, no one, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So why? Why do we want to lean into this? We want to lean into this because of what we talked about last week. This desire that we have to be a church who gives its heart, who gives itself away to be able to serve our city. And the number one roadblock, the number one thing that stands in the way of us being able to truly give ourselves away so that Henry County looks more like the kingdom of God. The number one thing that's standing in the way of us serving our city is us serving our money. And what I want to lean into with you today will hopefully get you to make this quantum shift that is saying, I have a heart that is for things of this world that goes inside and says, I actually long to and desire and willing to make the changes, to change the habits, to do things differently, so that my heart is actually anchored in heaven. And that's where my focus is. And that's where I'm paying things forward. And I have a heavenly-minded mentality that I do with everything that comes into my life because of what it says at the end of that passage. He says, you cannot serve two masters. 
He says you cannot serve both God and money. But I think if most of us were honest in this morning, we waited to the tension that we have when it comes to our finances, and we were honest with ourselves, and we looked over the course of our lives, the things that stress us out, the things that worry us the most, the things that keep us up at night, most of those things would lead us to the realization that money is our master. It's what I worry about the most. It's what I want the most. It's what I think if I just had, all my problems would be solved. It's what causes the most arguments in, in the marriage. It's what led to me being now on my second marriage. Not me personally, just hypotheticals here. <laughs> and when we think about money, the reality is, is money makes a terrible master. But Jesus is laying out in this passage that you're, you you're going to have one or two masters. Either money can be your master or I can. And most of us have found out, some of us in this room have found out that money makes a terrible master. On the flip side of that coin, some of us have found out that Jesus makes a great master. And when I really release and I really trust in him, he's a great master. Amen. And, he tr and, and what happens from there is, is, is actually better. Amen. And so what we're going to do in this series, we're going to kind of walk through three what I would call big questions. Big questions that if we could lean into these, it would help us in so many different categories. It would help us really to be able to get our lives from a financial foundation in line, in order. Because my, my, my thing, guys... It's, I don't ever want to stand on this stage and not, one, preach God's word to you, but two, I don't want to preach it in a way where you just go, ah, good to know. I, I want to be able to preach it in a way where you walk out and go, man, if I apply, and that's a big I if, if I can apply this, it will actually help me. It will make my life and the lives of those around me better. And so today we're going to lean in how to work. We're going to talk about how to work and why we work and, and what the uh, work cycle looks like. And next week, we're going to talk about how to honor God, how to honor God with what we get and what we work with. From there, we're going to talk about how to budget, which like, hey, go ahead and mark that one down. All right. It's, it's February, but like we don't, it, there's still time. There's hope. We can write a budget. And then from there, we're going to talk about how to Sabbath. Anybody use a little bit of rest? No, but you guys are all good. Cool. Fine. Yes, that one lady back there, she's like, Lord, give me some rest. So that's where we're going. And as we dive into this, um, I, I'm taking you here because Jessica and I, um, when we first got married, uh, we were going to this church um, that we weren't on staff at. And this was a church that we went to that, like, we were on staff at one church, but then we actually went to church somewhere else. It was great. Um, <laughs> it, they had a, they had a, a 6 p.m. Saturday, Sunday night service, and it's what we went to week in, week out. And it gave us some foundational truths to be able to apply to our marriage. And we went through this series and uh, Kevin Myers is the lead pastor who was teaching at the church. And, and these principles that we began to apply to our lives are some of the things that I hope to be able to teach you now. Because the reality is, guys, I'm a 32-year-old guy who's, who's just now getting into the phases where I'm starting to figure things out and begin to go, God, I wish I would know then what I know now. And so I want to lean into some of the wisdom of someone who's wiser than me, someone who's smarter than me, the wisdom that's found in God's word to be able to hopefully help you avoid some of the one mistakes that I've made but also get to a place where you go, I am setting myself and my family up for a great future to not have to worry about the things that are the most easiest things to worry about. Let's pray and we'll dive in. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the simple fact that you're the type of God who gave. And we could walk out of here, God, and even for those of us who are currently giving, whether it's our time, serving kids, serving ministries, whether it's our, our, our financial giving, whether it's us giving our talents to be able to help other people up, God, we could walk out of here and never, 
not a single moment more in our life, give anything back to your church or your people. And you would continue to give to us. That's the type of God you are. And so, Father, I pray that you would take the pressure that people are feeling, even right now, knowing this is where we're going. And they wouldn't feel like they're getting ready to go sit in the principal's office. But they would feel like they're getting ready to hear from a father who loves them unconditionally and wants to speak truth into their life. In your name, amen. Let me tell you a story. A story about a guy named Ignaz Simmelweis. Everybody say Ignaz. Ignaz, great name. You got any pregnant ladies in the house? Ignaz, great, great name. I'll call him Iggy for short. Um, Ignaz Simmelweis. Ignaz was an OBGYN in the mid-1800s in Vienna, in Europe. And he was uh, a hospital. He was basically worked um, in two different places, but he worked primarily delivering babies. And it's important to know that this hospital was also one of the uh, founding uh, research hospitals at that time. But Ignaz had this problem. One out of every ten babies that Ignaz delivered, the mother died. So he would deliver nine, and the tenth one would die. That's a terrible rate. Even for that point in the 1800s, that's a terrible rate. And so people are going, what in the world is wrong? Because not every doctor had that same statistic. There's actually stories recorded of, of mothers um, in the maternity ward, down on their knees, crying and going, please, find another doctor, find another doctor, because his reputation had become so. And so, no one knows why this is happening the way it is, and Ignaz goes on a four-month leave of absence. He goes on a four-month leave of absence, and something crazy happens. The mortality rate actually plummets. A lot of the women who are at the very same hospital, who are giving uh, very same types of births, they're not dying at a 1 to 10 rate. And so there's this conundrum, and people are going, well, what, what in the world is going on here? And so they begin to more so lean into exactly who he is specifically and the things that he's doing differently than the other doctors who are delivering babies. And one of the things that they discover, because the Vienna Hospital was a research hospital, they discover that Ignaz was also one of the leading doctors who was working on cadavers. Now, cadavers, if you have no idea what that is, that's a dead body. That's a dead, dead body. He stinketh, uh, as the Old Testament would say. Stinky dead bodies. And so Ignaz would go and work on the dead bodies. He would go in and, and, and do things to try to do research and everything else. And then he would go on the same day, go from working with a dead body to go and deliver babies. Yes, gross. But it's worse than gross. This is the thing that led to many mothers going to the grave before they ever should have. And what they began to discover through this is that there was a correlation between working with the dead bodies and going delivering live bodies. And this was at the time before anybody understood what germs were. And so what happened is they drew a line in the sand. And they said, okay, we've discovered that there is some correlation. There's so, some connection here. Even though I've set out to be a doctor who brings life, I am continually bringing death. So something has to change. And the change that they implemented is from then on, they began to wash their hands in chlorine and lime. And what they saw is the death rate of mothers who were giving birth, it plummeted. 
and these women started actually being able to give birth and live. And what happened here is they, get, they got this new standard, this new uh, guideline to life to say, we, if we can do this, and again, it's just something simple. It's as simple as chlorine and lime, washing our hands, but it changed and it saved so many lives. And in the book of Leviticus, we have something that God does that's very similar to that. It's God's way of saying, I'm going to give you some simple sets of standards that if you can just simply live these out and apply these to your life, it will be life-giving. And my fear is that so many of us are like Ignaz. When it comes to what we do with our finances, my fear is that we set out to do things and to manage what God has given us in a way that would be life-giving to us, life-giving to our families, but we get deceived because we're not aware of a standard that would give life. Ignaz, later in his life, he lamented how heartbreaking it was to know that while he had set out to be a doctor and to save lives, there were countless people who went to the grave before they should have, and it was his fault. In Leviticus, we see God trying to set up something that would be life-saving. And there's a, a passage that I want to lead you guys to. It's in Leviticus chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, Leviticus is, is in the beginning half, like this part, right in this area. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. That's where we're going to be. As you turn there, let me set up a little bit of, of what is actually going on here in the book of Leviticus. Give you a little bit of a backstory. So Leviticus was part of what's called the Pentateuch. It's the first five books of the Old Testament. The Pentateuch, there are the first five books of the Old Testament. They are what is both the foundation for the Jewish faith and the foundation for us as a Christian faith. And if you can understand both of these books, or these five books, you can understand and give light to the foundation that is where we take Christianity from here. What we see happening in this book, so you guys know kind of what's going on here. You see at the beginning, uh, God creates Adam and Eve. Um, they do some things. They, they do some good things wrong. They do some bad things right. Um, they mess up a lot. And then Noah comes on the scene. And uh, Noah's the only one who's doing anything right. Um, everybody else drowns. And um, God puts some things in a boat and some animals in a boat. And they go from there. Continues on. God raises up this guy named Abraham. He essentially says to this man, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and you're going to become the father of many nations. Your family... Your tribe of people is going to be my chosen people. And you're going to be set apart and you're going to be different. It goes through from there. Eventually that tribe of people enters into slavery under the Egyptians. And God raises up this guy named Moses. And he works through Moses. Moses, if you've ever seen the movie Prince of Egypt, he's working through Moses. And he ends up setting this nation of people free. And then he sets them apart to not be a nation that is in slavery anymore, but to be their own nation. And as he sets them up before they're getting ready to go out and finally do their own thing, he gives them a set of living standards to say, I don't want you to be like what you came from. I don't want you to be like where you're going from. I want you to be mine, and I want to give you guidelines so that that can happen. This is what he says. Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. This is God speaking to his people, his children. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites. Say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you. Do not follow their practice. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees, keep my laws. And for the person who obeys them, they will live by them. I am the Lord. It's essentially God saying, I need you guys to be theists. I need you to understand that I am your God. 
To not be like they were, to not be like they were, neither of them believed in me. So I need you to be like I'm calling you to be because you believe in me. Leviticus 9.1, he says this, he keeps going on. He said, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because the Lord your God, I am holy. See, what's going on here is God is establishing something. Not that he's just saying, I need you to be different than other people. He's also saying, I need you to be better and different. And I think in our society, oftentimes we ping pong between one or the other. Oftentimes we go far the other way and we just go, I'm just supposed to be different. And you ever met those Christians who are just like, they're just real different? And you're like, you're different. And they have a hard time. I mean, they're just, they're just bless their heart, different. And y'all are laughing because, you know, if you're not laughing, you might be that one. Um, they're, those, they're those people. They're just different. They're just different. And then they have the Christians, and I think this is where a lot of people fall in the category, where we say, like, I'm just supposed to kind of be like the rest of my culture, but I'm just supposed to be a little bit better. Like, my kids are better behaved. I'm better at giving to charity. I'm, I'm better morally and ethically. I'm better at doing my taxes and making sure everything lines up right. I'm just better. And what God is saying here in the book of Leviticus, he's t- talking to his people and he's saying, listen, I'm not just trying to give you a better way of living. And I'm not just trying to give you a different way of living. I'm trying to give you a better and a different way of living. So much so that you look radically different in a way that doesn't ostracize other people, but it becomes appealing to other people that they want to experience the love that I have for them as well. And this is what he's after here. And what he's doing in the same way that... Um, Ignaz and the doctors at the hospital that they set up this new fence to say okay if we can just stay here and do what we need to do in regards to washing our hands we will be okay and we'll be able to continue to save lives what God is doing in the book of Leviticus he's essentially setting up the same thing and he's saying I'm going to give you a set of standards that will apply to multiple different areas of your life and so in Leviticus we see him give him rules about dietary things r- rules about how to work and when to work and when not to he gives them things about cleanliness And then what we're going to primarily lean into today is he gives them the system for how to work and how to govern what they get. He gives them a new economic cycle. If you've got a Bible, the main passage that we're going to lean into today is Leviticus 19, starting verse 23. If you've got a Bible, go there. This is what he says. He's saying you're going to get there, it's going to be your place, and I'm going to tell you how to start to be able to provide for yourself. And to trust in me. Starting in verse 23, he says this. When you enter the land and plant any kind of fruit tree, regard its fruit as forbidden. For three years you are to consider it forbidden, and it must not be eaten. And then in the fourth year, all its fruit will be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. That's essentially him saying, that's mine. But in the fifth year, you may eat its fruit. In this way, your harvest will be increased. I am the Lord your God. So in summary, God says, go into the land, plant some trees, some fruit trees, give it three years. In the fourth year, you're going to see a harvest. Take that harvest and give it to me. And then on the fifth year, you got it. It's yours. Eat it. Take it and feed your families. And he gives them this plan. He gives them the setup. He gives them the system of how to nourish and, and, and be able to provide for their families. Now, in this system, this is basically where we get this, the idea of giving God the first fruits of our lives. This is out of this flows where we talk about giving God the first, right off the top, the tenth. That's where this comes from. But I would imagine some of you are like I am, or like I was. And I've 
sometimes fall back into. And even when we, we get in here and we start to talk about, okay, well, let's, you know, we're doing a series on, on, on giving, we're doing a series on money and how to do that God's way. When you think about doing money and handling money God's way, most of us in our head, we go, that's going to mean less for me. Like, that's going to mean less. If I do it God's way, it's going to mean less. But what he says here is that's not the case. I don't know why we always jump to that conclusion that if I do it God's way, I'm going to have less. Because what he says here is if you'll do it my way, if you'll follow the economic cycle that I'm trying to set up, I'm trying to set up this guideline and this fence. So just say on, on this side of things, and what does he say? At the end of verse um, 23, 25, he says, this way the harvest will be increased. He says this, uh, there actually be will increase if you do it this way. But if you shortcut the system, it's not going to be. And so what I want to walk you through this morning is essentially what, what I would call God's economic cycle. If you're here, you're taking notes, you begin to even write some of this down. We're going to talk about God's economic cycle. And there's so much that we can lean into and learn from this. The first phase in God's economic cycle that he's illustrating here is sow. Okay? So you go into land and you sow the seed. You sow it. You scatter the seed and you put it in the ground. So that's the first phase in God's economic cycle. The second is this. It grows. This is where he went to him. He said, listen, you put it in the ground and you let it grow for three years. And you don't have to be an, you know, a farmer to understand that what was going on here is the trees that they planted had to actually take root. It had to go down. They couldn't go in and, and prune it and take it before it was time or they would have messed up the whole system. No shortcuts allowed. And the last phase in the God's economic cycle is the harvest. He said, then, after it's grown, you take the first fruits... From that fourth year, you take those and you give them as an offering to me. And then from the fifth year on, you take what you've gotten, you can have that, and then you take the same seeds and you put them back in to continue to grow. Because it's not an economic point A to point B, it's an economic cycle that has to be cyclical. Where you take the seeds from what you have harvested, and now you have a harvest that doesn't go by addition, but actually goes by multiplication. I don't know about you, but I would love to see like what God has given me multiply and not just add. And so we look at this system, and we see this economic cycle, and I want to walk you through some of the way this works. So when we talk about this idea of, of sowing, this is the season where it's plant and plow. Plant and plow. This season of life is defined by hard work. It's saying, I've got to do some different things. I've got to actually work, and I've got to actually grind and hustle to be able to put this in the ground. This is where I've got to do the hard work, to dig into the ground, to actually plant the seeds. The next part is depicted by this, weeds and wait. Weeds and wait. How many of you guys just absolutely love to wait? Just love to wait on things to grow. Love to wait on that, you know, the right job to come. I love to just wait on the taxes. To come. I love to wait. I just like what Nobody. We hate waiting. This is why sometimes we shortcut the process because we hate waiting on the process. And the last part of the process is the harvest, and it's where we reap and we reward. It's where we get the reward. And when we look at these three things, we see how this process works where we sow and we plant. And, and you've seen these happen in your, your own lives. Uh, young people in the room, college age, high school age, whatever. You're in the sow stage of life. And so right now, like, even though your parents love you, you're not necessarily an asset. You're kind of a liability. But, and, and listen, that's okay. It's because this is a season in your life where they are sowing into you. 
and you begin to sow into what God would have next for you. And then as a, as a 20-something, you get to what is the, the grow season. Or some parents will say, this is the go season. <laughs> you get here. And, and this is where you, you go out. And again, and this is why I, I, I counsel so many young people. And, and like this is where we go, well, well I just, my, my mom, she's driving this car and I want to get this car. I'm like, listen, your mom worked for 35 years to be able to drive the car that she's driving. And, and your dad did, you know, work the job that you hate right now. He did that for seven years before he got the promotion to where he's at. You can't expect to just roll out of bed, roll out of, you know, I'm out of the honeymoon. Well, we get the house like my mom's got. We get the car like dad's got. We got all this. That's not how it works because that's where we try to shortcut the process. And say, I want to harvest what they're harvesting. And there's no greater thing to throw you, your economic cycle, out of whack by trying to get to a stage that somebody else is at that you're not supposed to be on yet. Some of you just need to own the fact that right now I am in sow season. And I've got to plow and plant. Some of you, I'm in the grow season. I've got to wait. I've got to wait out this job, this boss whose breast smells like onion rings and always in my face talking about stuff. I've got to wait this out until I can just be here for long enough until it looks good on a resume, and then I'm going to get out of here. You sometimes just got to wait it out and deal with the weeds and deal with the words that people say behind your back. You sometimes just got to wait it out, and then you get to the harvest, and that's where we actually reap, and that's where we actually have a reward. But in between those two things is us giving God honor and glory. And I believe that oftentimes God will leave you in one of these phases longer than he needs to. Because you haven't got one of the things that he needs you to get. That I need you to trust me through all these phases. I don't think there's any faster way to fast forward yourself through these and to bring yourself back around to where your harvest is multiplying than to trust God through the midst of the process and to give to him the first fruits out of whatever season we're in. If I'm tithing off of a seven dollars and 15 cents mcdonald's paycheck well good i'm actually showing god that i trust him and some people say well man if i if i could, if i was just making a hundred thousand dollars a year i would tie then no you wouldn't if you won't do it with a little you won't do it with a lot and that's just, that's not trench word that's that's scripture and so god walks us through this cycle and we see this but most of the cycle that our society has us going after and where you will default, like if you just raise a kid and you say, good luck, buddy, do your thing, what they will default into is this economic cycle. Harvest, harvest, harvest. Harvest, harvest, harvest. And when I run out of my own harvest, I'm going to go look for somebody else to give me the harvest that I think I deserve because I'm entitled to that. And this is what leaves us as a country where we have people buying things that they can't afford and we eventually bankrupt ourselves and we bankrupt our country because all of us are doing everything we can to provide for those who are not sowing and not growing. And it's really easy to get in a conversation like this and go, oh, you're talking about politics now. Is it politics or is it ethics? I'll leave the tension there. Because the reality is God's kind of set up a plan. And we'll dig into some of that later, and we'll talk through some of the different processes. But to lighten the mood a little bit, here's the reality. All of us are susceptible to buying things we can't afford. And I love how Saturday Night Live made light of this in this clip. Check it out. I just can't get these numbers to add up. It's like we're never going to get out of this hole. Credit card debt, does it ever end? <laughs> Maybe I can help. We sure could use it. We've tried debt consolidation companies. We've even taken out loans to help make payments. Well, you're not the only ones. 
Did you know millions of Americans live with debt they cannot control? That's why I developed this unique new program for managing your debt. It's called Don't Buy Stuff You Cannot Afford. Oh, let me see that. If you don't have any money, you should not buy anything. Hmm, sounds interesting. Sounds confusing. I don't know, honey. This makes a lot of sense. There's a whole section here on how to buy expensive things using money you save. Give me that. And where would you get this saved money? I tell you where and how in chapter three. Okay, but what if I want something but I don't have any money? You don't buy it. Well, let's say I don't have enough money to buy something. Should I buy it anyway? No. Now I'm really confused. It's a little confusing at first. Well, what if you have the money? Can you buy something? Yes. Now take the money away. Same story? Nope. You shouldn't buy stuff when you don't have the money. I think I got it. I buy something I want and then hope that I can pay for it, right? <laughs> no. You make sure you have money, then you buy it. Oh, then you buy it. But shouldn't you buy it before you have the money? No. Why not? It's in the book. It's only one page long. The advice is priceless, and the book is free. Wow, I like the sound of that. Yeah, we can put it on our credit card. <laughs> so get out of debt now. Write for your free copy of Don't Buy Stuff You Cannot Afford. And if you order now, you'll also receive Seriously. If you don't have the money, don't buy it. Along with a 12-month subscription to Stop Buying Stuff magazine. So order today. <laughs> pretty good, right? It's pretty classic. But like, there's so many of us, like, like and again, I'll pick on my, my, my generation, we just don't get that. And I, I know there's people across the board, whether or not you're, you're 80 or you're, you're 18, where we fall into that category. But that's just something that is almost unheard of. To go, no, no, I, I don't have the money. I, that means that I don't get to have it. And in the silliness of it, we, we, we begin to see that where it, the chord it strikes is that reality that so many of us, our default is into harvest, 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 harvest. And when we, we look at what God's word talks about in, in regards to this, I know we've leaned into Leviticus a good bit, but I, I want to dive into Second um, Thessalonians 3.6. So again, fast forward a little bit into now the New Testament. And this is more what, what, what Jesus is talking about, what Jesus is leading through and guys like the Apostle Paul and how is he's telling a church that's under now the grace of God who's not operating under the law and necessarily all the old commands, we're going to talk about that next week, the difference between law and love, and which one actually requires more. But in uh, 2 Thessalonians 3.6, he says this, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, this is Paul talking to a church just like ours, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive. He said, if you're just there, and, and they're just, it's just, I want to harvest, I deserve this. If someone's not willing to work, he says again in uh, 3.9, he says, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Now we hear that verse and we go, that's not very nice. But what it doesn't say, guys, is the one who is unable to work should not eat. And, and this is where we've got to understand that there's a system and a process that God has put in place. And if we can do these things, if we can sow, if we can grow, and if we can be a people who give to God in the midst of the harvest, we can get to a place where... 
those who are willing to work are working. And again, why do we work? Do we work so we can, you know, get on Instagram and just flex on everybody? Do we work so that, you know, we can have a house in that neighborhood? Do we work just so that we can drive that car? No, we work. What does it say? Paul said we work so that we can share with those in need because it makes it cyclical again. It's that reminder that this thing that God has given me is not for me only. It's for me to give back, to share with others who are in need. When you think about this in life, it reminds us of that reality that so many of us struggle with feeling like we're missing out. This fear of missing out, FOMO as it's called. And when we fear missing out, so we think we should do it our way and we should do things the way that we think they need to be done. And what happens is because we fear missing out, we shortcut God's process. And when we shortcut God's process, what we're actually doing is we're robbing ourselves of the things that we could have learned through going through the process. So if you're a student, and you cheat on a test. What actually is happening there is you're shortcutting the process. And when it comes to the time when you actually would have to work, you'll actually produce less because you never learned how to work. And so when we think about this idea of, of making shortcuts, of stealing and doing these things, um, it reminds me of how um, this new common thing is the reality of porch pirates. Anybody know about porch pirates? Yes. Uh, raise your hand if you've got an alarm system at your house. Alarm system? Cool. Whether it's uh, uh, ADT or ABP, simply say, for Glock or Smith or Wesson. But most of us have alarm systems <laughs> at our house. And um, when it comes to these porch pirates, there's these people who are going up and, you know, Amazon's dropping packages over and there's more and more things uh, being delivered. I, I did, we didn't go to like one single shore to do, store to do Christmas shopping this year. Everything was delivered right to our house. But these porch pirates, these people who are just driving around during the holiday season, or really any season, uh, and they're just looking at porches and seeing where stacks of Amazon boxes are at. And they're just going up and nabbing these things. And there's this video I wanted to show you of some porch pirates um, who had a little bit of an unfortunate uh, situation. So check this out. All right, there's a lady. She's a pirate. She's running in doing pirate things. Okay, there she is. Different angle. These people are smart. They got cameras at their house. Got some packages. She says, ooh, jackpot. Gets them. Loads them up. Head back to the car. Whoop! Now listen close. All right. Her uh, boyfriend, hus husband, I don't know what he is necessarily, accomplice. Um, he sees her struggling. The struggle is real. He says, good Lord, lady. Come on now. She says, all right. Now, he's a, a Seattle Seahawks fan. I don't take that. He says, I'm going to have to get your butt up. Come on, girl. I wish that thing wasn't right there to see the struggle right here. He gets her, though. He says, baby girl, I got you. We're getting back in this car. We ain't getting caught. Carries her all the way there. I would have put her in the trunk. Um, <laughs> puts her in the front seat. And what you can't see in that video, I had to cut it off because I didn't want it to be super long, is he actually goes back to the boxes that she slipped on, and he gets them, and he takes them, and he puts them back in the car. Now, like, we watched that video, and it's funny. Like, I don't know about you, but I'm the type of person who I see that happen. I'm like, man, I'm glad she got what she deserved. And uh, maybe that's wrong of me as a pastor, but <laughs> your laughter says yes. But here's the thing. While so many of us 
we see something like that, and we like, ah, man, we laugh. It, maybe it makes us feel a little bit angry that there are people out there that are just doing that. We see them on video, and it makes us angry. Um, one of the things that's just as equally concerning for me as porch pirates stealing our stuff is that there are followers of Christ all across this country and all in this church who see something like this and are ethically outraged at what they just saw. But it never occurs to them that we do the very same thing at offering time. And God, in his loving patience, chooses not to give us what we deserve. See, God says in here in Leviticus, he lays it out through the Bible, that we as God people, we're, we're called to week in, week out, give to him back off of what he's given us. And maybe it's never occurred to you that the very offering that you withhold from God, he sees you just the same way that you saw those people steal the packages from that house. And see, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm trying to wake you up to the terrifying reality that the saddest part about that, when we withhold stuff from God and we rob what is his so that we can keep it, the sad part is, guys, is we do that. And I've done it too. We do that so that we think we will actually get ahead. And God is saying, no, I'm sorry. I, I, wish, I, I wish that I could let you get ahead by shortcutting the system that I've set in place. But I'm an ever-changing, ever-loving God. I love you so much, but I don't change. And I need you to stick to this. I need you to stick to the process because, man, I want to bless you like crazy. I want to pour out an overflow of abundance in your life so that other people can be blessed. I want to open up my favor to you, but you're on the wrong side of the fence. And this is where we as God's people have got to honestly look at our lives and go, am I an economic theist or am I an economic atheist? Because for so many of us, when we get into this cycle of harvest, 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 you have no choice to ultimately lean into stealing, cheating, and robbing because all you want to get is ahead. And here's the deal, guys. Write this down. If you talk like someone who believes in God, if you pray like someone who believes in God, but if you work and you manage your money like someone who doesn't believe in God, you are outside of the favor of God. And when I, when I look at our church, and again, if you're new here today, this, this, you can lean in. You're, you're in a family conversation right now, but please don't feel like even, even like you have to give it. If you're, you're new here today, this is, this, is us, this is us talking house for a second. The reality is, for MCC currently, where we're at is we have a majority of people who, in regards to the way we give and serve God through our giving, the way we worship God through our giving, we would be economic atheists. And that's not just me going off of my gut. This is me looking at our, our church, looking at how many people show up and sitting here. And I'm not talking about just people who, like, you've been coming once or twice trying to figure out if this is you. But I'm talking about the people who you come in and your kids get well taken care of and served in children's ministry. You come in and you connect with God. You get a fresh word from Him. You come in and maybe you're even serving already. And maybe you're already plugged in and, and doing things on a Wednesday night with a group. And if someone hits you on the street and they go say, hey, where do you go to church? You would unequivocally say, I go to McDonough Christian Church. That's who I'm talking to right now. I look at those numbers, and I have no idea the number amount that's ever attached to any name that gives here. I don't see any of that. None of our elders see that. There's, there's a few people on a finance committee who see that. 
and they're vetted and they're processed through. But when I look at the number of people who are actually giving versus the number of people who are actually here, guys, the, the reality, again, this is something I'm not, I'm not proud of because this is the church that I have to represent before God and, and, and be accountable to him to lead us in that direction. The reality is the majority of us, while we may have faith in God, are living outside of what I would say is the favor of God because we haven't done things with our finances in the ways of God. And my prayer through this series is that this would be an invitation, that you would see this series as just God swinging the gate wide open, that the fence you would see right there, there's the, there's the opening to the fence, and I can choose to get back on the right side. Not for, not, for the sake, not for the sake of budget being met, not for the sake of, uh, of anything else, but to say, God, I want to experience what it's truly like to actually trust you with what you've given me. If you're wondering what I, talk, what I mean when I talk about favor, it's this. Favor is God's demonstrated delight in you for his glory and for others' benefit. You will benefit, trust me, you will benefit from experiencing the favor of God. But you will benefit because you're able to give glory back to him and others are able to benefit because of it. I don't know about you, man, but I look around and I just go, man, I would love to be more generous. I, wanna, I think one of the things that would define us, when we talked about last week, of uh, being McDonough's Christian church. How will you know you're McDonough's Christian church? I think one of the defining characteristics that will show us we are McDonough's Christian church when we begin to practice radical generosity. And we're already, again... There are some things, as I've come in and started to lead this church, I think there are some things that's like, all right, um, we're not even there and we need to get there. And there are some things that I say, we're on our way there. And this one, I would say, we are on our way there. 16% of everything that comes into this church goes never to fund anything in this building. It goes out into our community and it goes overseas to India, Albania, Ghana, Kenya, Haiti, and Mexico. And it goes into this local community. And I've served at a few different churches, served at some very large churches, that's not normal. And we want to continue to be a church that says we want to be defined. We want to show our city the love of God. In a, in a time where, listen, God, man, you know this. Even you're, you're thinking this stuff right now. I'm, I'm in your head. I've been there where you're at. More and more people trust churches less and less. Because guys like me, in my role, have got on stages and manipulated people, made them feel like you're cursed if you don't give, and then made them feel like you'll be so blessed and highly favored, and you just name it and claim it, and, and you're going to be healthy and wealthy and rock on into centuries from here on after, and your children will be blessed if you just continue to give to my ministries and help me buy this private jet. And I don't blame you for not trusting guys like me. But it's not a matter of whether or not you're going to trust me or not. It's a matter of going, God, will you let your word be the authority in my life? And God, do I actually trust, not what Trent says, but what your word says? Will I, actually, will I just trust this? this it's not a matter of anything about me. You don't got to trust me. I, I think you should. We're an open book financially. You can come and know what, pretty much whatever number you want to know. We have no problem telling that. If that's what's the roadblock for you, bring it on. If that's what you, don't use that as an excuse between you and being able to worship God through giving that you don't know what he's making or you don't know what the overall budget is. I don't care. I want you to be close to Jesus and that's the end of the story. And so for us, we're getting ready to sing this song. And the song is called Yes, I Will. And there's a lyric in the song that goes like this. 
He says, I count on one thing. The same God that never fails will not fail me now. You won't fail me now. In the waiting, the same God that's never late, you're working all things out. You're working all things out. How many of you today, regardless if it's something financial, whether it's something um, in any area of your life, you would say right now, there is something in my life that I need God to work out. If you'd be brave enough to admit that, man, there's just something in my life right now, God, I need you to work this thing out. Maybe it's an employer, maybe, maybe it's your taxes, you look at them and you're like, God, you got between now and April, whatever it is. Thank you for giving me, a, thank God, God, thank you, it's a leap year, I get one extra day to try to figure this out. But you got something in your life, you're going, God, I need, I need, I need you to help me figure this out. My question is, as the song says, I count on one thing. My question to you is, what one thing are you counting on? Are you counting on the accountant? Are you counting on getting buddy-buddy with that manager so he can put in a good word? Are you counting on your, your, your I actually told somebody this between services, are you counting on uh, that prodigal child that you have meeting a good-looking Christian girl so she'll actually start taking him to church? What are you counting on? If it's anything else than Jesus Christ himself, it doesn't count. My prayer is that you would, as the song says today, you would say, yes, I will. Yes, I will give you the trust in this. Yes, I will give you my all in this. And that you would turn it over to him. And some of you today, the thing that you need to say yes, I will to is that thing that you've been saying no, I won't to for weeks now. I want to invite you even in these moments to accept Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Because some of you, you haven't got there yet. You haven't realize that Jesus didn't just tithe his blood, that Jesus gave all of his blood and all of his life for you on the cross so that you could have true life in him. And my prayer today is that you would stop saying, uh, no, I won't. I won't give uh, Jesus. I got to clean some stuff up on my, my side of things. I got to get some things in order. And then I'm going to give my life to you. Then I'm going to surrender to baptism that you would say today, no, I won't make any more excuses. Yes, I will surrender it to you. And if that's you today, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would walk forward and say, yes, I will take that step of faith, maybe even into baptism day, today. You have everything you need to be able to take that step. The word of God has landed on your heart. You want to take that obedient step into it. I invite you into that today. Let's stand, church, and pray together. Jesus, you saw every hand that went up that represented a need that only I believe you can meet. Now, you may use people in this room to meet it. You may use the new wisdom that you've given this person in the room who raised their hand to meet it, but only by the power of your Holy Spirit working in their lives will that need be met. And I pray, Jesus, that they, even now in their hearts, they feel the weight, the pressure, and the anxiety that rested all on their shoulders to work everything out to figure out what I'm going to do with this aging parent, to figure out what I'm going to do with my taxes, to figure out what I'm going to do with this employee at work or what I'm going to do in this relationship, that you would, God, begin to give them the wisdom to say, it's okay that I don't know. And I trust, God, that you do. I'm going to worship you right now in the midst of it. Jesus, we love you. Move in your people's hearts, minds, lives, hands, and feet today. In your name. Amen.